Welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. This is Friday, December the 22nd. I'm your reader. My name is Doug Kretzinger. And we'll turn now to our first story on the Globe Gazette. There is not much local news here, but the lead story on the front page, it says Giuliani files for bankruptcy. There's a picture of him on the front page. It is in color. And it reads, he was ordered last week to pay $148 million over ballot conspiracy. It's written by Michael R. Sizak and Larry Neumeister, Associated Press. Dateline is New York. Rudy Giuliani filed for bankruptcy Thursday, acknowledging severe financial strain exacerbated by his pursuit of former President Donald Trump's lies about the 2020 election and a jury's verdict last week requiring him to pay $148 million to two former Georgia election workers he defamed. The former New York City mayor listed almost $153 million in existing or potential debts, including almost $1 million in state and federal tax liabilities, money he owes lawyers and many millions of dollars in potential judgments in lawsuits against him. He estimated he had assets worth $1 million to $10 million. Giuliani was teetering on the brink of financial ruin for several years, but the eye-popping damages award to former election workers Ruby Freeman and Wandrea Shea Moss pushed him over the edge. The women said uh, Giuliani's targeting of them after Republican Trump narrowly lost Georgia to Democrat Joe Biden, led to death threats that made them fear for their lives. Ted Goodman, a political advisor and spokesperson for Giuliani, said in a statement, Giuliani's decision to seek bankruptcy protection should be a surprise to no one because no person could have reasonably believed that Mayor Giuliani would be able to pay such a high punitive amount. The Chapter 11 filing will give Giuliani the opportunity and time to pursue an appeal while providing transparency for his finances under the supervision of the bankruptcy court to ensure all creditors are treated equally and fairly throughout the process, Goodman said. Bankruptcy law doesn't allow for the dissolution of debts that come from a willful and malicious injury inflicted on someone else. A judge said Wednesday that Freeman and Moss could start pursuing payment immediately, saying any delay could give Giuliani time to hide assets. This maneuver is unsurprising, and it will not succeed in discharging Mr. Giuliani's debt to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, said their lawyer, Michael Gottlieb. After the verdict, Giuliani repeated his stolen election claims, insisted he did nothing wrong, and suggested he'd keep pressing his claims even if it meant losing all his money or going to jail. His rhetoric prompted Freeman and Moss to sue him again this week. The December 15 verdict was the latest and costliest sign of the mounting financial toll incurred incurred by Giuliani, 79, a one-time Republican presidential candidate and high-ranking Justice Department official once heralded as America's mayor, for his leadership after the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. Once swimming in cash as a globetrotting security consultant, Giuliani's money 
woes intensified amid investigations, lawsuits, fines, sanctions, and damages related to his work helping Trump try to overturn the 2020 election. Among his potential debts, he listed lawsuits brought by two voting machine manufacturers who say he and others defamed them with claims of a stolen election. A lawyer for Giuliani, Adam Katz, suggested at an August court hearing in one of those cases that Giuliani was close to broke and unable to pay a number of bills, including a $12,000 to $18,000 tab for a company to search through his electronic records for evidence. In court papers rebuffing voting machine maker Smartmatic's demand for an accounting of his finances, Giuliani's lawyers disclosed that he was so hard up for money that he solicited third-party donations to pay a prior $300,000 bill to the electronic discovery firm. In September, Giuliani's Giuliani's former lawyer, Robert Costello, sued him for almost $1.4 million in unpaid legal bills, and the case is pending. Costello represented Giuliani from November 2019 to July of 2023 in matters ranging from an investigation into his business dealings in Ukraine, which resulted in an FBI raid on his home and office in April of 2021, to investigations of his work in the wake of Trump's 2020 election loss. Investigators noted Giuliani's dwindling finances in court papers unsealed this week from the 2021 raid. Raising his need for money as possible motivation, for his interest in aiding a Ukrainian official. Citing bank records and other information, they said Giuliani went from having about $1.2 million in the bank and $40,000 in credit card debt in January of 2018 to about $288,000 in cash and $110,000 credit debt in February of 2019. Giuliani was never charged with a crime as a result of that investigation. Giuliani's other lawsuits, which he listed as potential liabilities, include one brought against him by Biden's son, Hunter, who alleges Giuliani was responsible for the total annihilation of his digital privacy by accessing and sharing his personal data from his laptop computer. Giuliani is also being sued by a woman who said she worked for him. She alleges he owed her nearly $2 million in unpaid wages and coerced her into sex. Another lawsuit involves a man who claims Giuliani defamed him after he slapped the ex-mayor on the back of a super, back at a supermarket. In August, Giuliani was indicted with Trump and others in Georgia on charges he acted as Trump's chief co-conspirator in a plot to subvert Biden's victory. He was also described as a co-conspirator but not charged in special counsel Jack Smith's federal election interference case against Trump. This article uh, is right underneath that article on the front page. Supreme Court could decide Trump's political legal future. It's written by Alana Durkin-Riker, or Richer, R-I-C-H-E-R, and Lindsay Whitehurst. It's an Associated Press article. Dateline is Washington. Donald Trump touts his transformation of the U.S. Supreme Court as one of his presidency's greatest accomplishments. Now his legal and political future may lie in the hands of the court he pushed to the right. 
With three Trump-appointed justices leading a conservative majority, the court is being thrust into the middle of two cases carrying enormous political implications just weeks before the first votes in the Iowa caucuses. The outcomes of the legal fights could dictate whether the Republican presidential primary front-runner stands trial over his efforts to overturn the 2020 election and whether he has a shot to retake uh, to retake to the White House next November. The Supreme Court now is really in a sticky wicket or historical proportions of constitutional dimensions to a degree that I don't think we've ever really seen before, said Steve Vladek, a law professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Trump's lawyers plan to ask the Supreme Court to overturn a decision Tuesday, harrowing him from barring him from Colorado's ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which prohibits anyone who swore an oath to support the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection against it from holding office. The Colorado Supreme Court ruling is the first time in history the provision has been used to try to prohibit someone from running for the presidency. It's a political mess in the Supreme Court. Say again. It's a political mess the Supreme Court may have a hard time avoiding, said Michael Gerhardt, a University of North Carolina law professor. It comes as the justices separately weigh a request from special counsel Jack Smith to take up and rule quickly on whether Trump can be persecuted, rather prosecuted, on charges he plotted to overturn the 2020 election results. Prosecutors hope justices will act swiftly to answer whether Trump is immune from prosecution to prevent delays that could push the trial, currently scheduled to begin on March 4, until after next year's presidential election. Trump denies wrongdoing in the case. The three justices appointed by Trump, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, were among more than 230 federal judges installed under Trump as part of a GOP push to transform the ideological leanings of the bench. His impact on the high court has been seen in rulings rescinding the five-decade-old constitutional right to abortion, setting new standards for evaluating gun laws, and striking down affirmative action in college emissions. This is a court that is already a lightning rod in our contemporary political discourse, a court that is viewed quite skeptically by a large swath of the American electorate, Vladek said. It's also a court that has not bent over backwards for Trump. For example, in January 2022, the high court rebuffed Trump's attempt to withhold presidential documents sought by the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. The justices also allowed Trump's tax returns to be handed over to a congressional committee after his refusal to release them touched off a years-long legal fight. The Supreme Court also was thrust into the middle of a presidential election more than 20 years ago in the razor-thin contest between Al Gore and George W. Bush. In 2000, the justices ruled 5-4 to four to stop a state court-ordered recount of the vote in Florida, a ruling that effectively settled the election in favor of Bush since neither candidate could muster an electoral college majority without Florida. But that case never came after the, but that case 
came after the votes were cast. In 2023, the general political instability in the United States makes the situation now much more precarious, wrote Rick Hasen, an election law expert and professor at the UCLA School of Law on the Election Law blog. It's far from certain that the Supreme Court will decide now to take up Trump's immunity claims in the election interference case, which were rejected by the trial court judge in a ruling that declared the office of the president does not confer a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free pass. Smith wants the Supreme Court to bypass the federal appeals court in Washington, which expedited its own review of the decision. The Supreme Court could wait to get involved until after the appeals court judges hear the case. Trump's lawyers urged the Supreme Court on Wednesday not to intervene before the appeals court rules. The Colorado Supreme Court put its decision on hold until January 4 or until the U.S. Supreme Court rules on the case. Colorado officials say the issue must be settled by January 5, the deadline for the state to print its presidential primary ballots. It's possible the high court will try to dodge the issue and not decide the merits of the Colorado case. It would be like kicking the hornet's nest for the court to get into the merits of this, Gerhardt said. It's a political hot potato. And the court generally tries to avoid taking on sort of hot hot button issues that are political by nature. And the easier route for the court is to just say, Somebody else has got the responsibility, not us. But the Supreme Court may feel compelled to answer the issue at the heart of the case now. There'll be a lot of political instability if we go through a whole election season not knowing if one of two major candidates is disqualified from serving, Hayden said. It's hard to fathom the kind of world we're living in where not only a serious candidate, but a leading candidate of one of the political parties is in so much legal jeopardy. Jump to page three here now, and there's some brief articles I want to read to you. It's about mortgages. The average rate on a 30-year mortgage loan dropped to 6.67%, six-month low from 6.95% last week, mortgage buyer Freddie Mac said Thursday. The average rate on 15-year fixed-rate mortgages fell to 5.95% from 6.38% last week. And uh, on uh, Andre Desmond, 30, a man accused of attacking a Connecticut state representative outside a Muslim prayer service in June, was ordered Thursday to undergo a mental competency evaluation. Down in Arizona, Peggy Judd and Tom Crosby, Republican officials from Arizona's rural Cochise County, pleaded not guilty Thursday to felony charges for delaying the certification of the county's 2022 midterm election results. The two had refused to sign off on the vote count by a deadline. Page 3, a story from the Middle East. It's entitled, Report, Gaza is Starving. Risk of famine grows due to limited aid entering the enclave. Written by Nahib Jobain, Jack Jeffrey, and Colleen Berry. Associated Press article. Dateline is Rafah, Gaza Gaza Strip. More than half a million people in Gaza. A quarter of the population are starving, according to a report Thursday by the UN and other agencies that highlights the humanitarian crisis caused by Israel's bombardment and siege on the territory in response to Hamas's attack October 7. 
The extent of the population's hunger eclipsed even the near famines in Afghanistan and Yemen of recent years, according to figures in the report. The report warned that the risk of famine is increasing each day, blaming the hunger on insufficient aid entering Gaza. It doesn't get any worse, said Arif Hussain, chief economist for the UN's World Food Program. I have never seen something at the scale that is happening in Gaza and at this speed. Israel said it is in the final stages of clearing out Hamas militants from northern Gaza, but months of fighting lie ahead in the south. The war sparked by Hamas' deadly October 7 rampage and hostage-taking in Israel has killed almost 20,000 Palestinians, some 1.9 million Gaza residents, more than 80% of the population have been driven from their homes, and many of them are crammed into UN shelters. The war also pushed Gaza's health sector into collapse. Only nine of its 36 health facilities are still partially functioning, all located in the south, according to the World Health Organization. WHO relief workers on Thursday reported unbearable scenes in two hospitals they visited in northern Gaza. Bedridden patients with untreated wounds cry out for water. The few remaining doctors and nurses have no supplies and bodies are lined up in the courtyard. Bombardment and fighting continued Thursday and internet and communications that had been knocked out for several days gradually began to return across the territory. The UN Security Council on Thursday again delayed a vote on a watered-down resolution to deliver desperately needed aid to Gaza. A revision backed by the United States, while other countries supported a stronger text that would include the now-eliminated call for the urgent suspension of hostilities, being Isra- of hostilities between Israel and Hamas. The revised draft resolution was discussed behind closed doors for over an hour by council members not long after it was circulated. Because there were significant changes, Many said they needed to consult their capitals before a vote, which was expected Friday. Still on page three, the article right below that one is entitled Gunman Kills 14 at University. It's violence in downtown Prague leaves more than 20 people injured, written by Carol Janicek of the Associated Press. Dateline is Prague. Student opened fire Thursday at a university in Prague, killing at least 14 people, officials said, and injuring more than 20 in the Czech Republic's worst mass shooting. The bloodshed took place in the Philosophy Department building of Charles University, where the shooter was a student, Prague Police Chief Martin Vondrasek said. The gunman also died, authorities said. His name was not released. Vondrasek said 14 people died and 25 were injured. Authorities warned the death toll could rise. Police gave no details about the victims or a possible motive for the shooting. Czech Interior Minister Vit Rakusan said investigators do not suspect a link to any extremist ideology or groups. Von Drasic said people believe the gunman killed his father earlier Thursday in his hometown of Houston, just west of Prague, and that he also planned to kill himself he didn't elaborate. Later Thursday, Von Drasek said based on a search of his home, the gunman was also suspected in the killing of another man and his two-month-old daughter last week in Prague. 
The chief described the shooter as an excellent student with no criminal record, but didn't provide other information. The gunman suffered devastating injury. Devastating injuries, but it wasn't clear if he killed himself or was shot to death in exchange of gunfire with officers, Von Drassick said. The shooter legally owned several guns. Police said he was heavily armed Thursday and was carrying a lot of ammunition. And what he did was well thought out, a horrible act, Von Dressig said. The building where the shooting took place is near the Vitaba River in Jean Palak Square, a busy tourist area in Prague's old town. The government quickly sought to quell concerns that the massacre was backed by foreign interests. There's no indication that it has anything to do with international terrorism, Rakasan said. Pavel Nadoma, the director of the nearby Rudolfanum Gallery, said he watched from a window as a person standing on a balcony of the building fired a gun. Previously, the nation's worst mass shooting was in 2015 when a gunman opened fire in the southeastern town of Johersky Brod, killing eight before fatally shooting himself. Turning to the sports section now, I, I see no local local stories, but I do see this one here. It's on the front of the sports section. It says, Otani named AP's top male athlete for a second time in three years. It's written by Greg Beecham of the Associated Press. Anaheim, California is the dateline. And before Shohai Otani stepped into the bright lights of Hollywood and signed the most lucrative contract in professional sports history, Baseball's two-way superstar put together yet another season of unparalleled brilliance from Tokyo to Anaheim. What can this singular talent possibly do next? The Los Angeles Dodgers are eagerly paying seven, eagerly paying $700 million to see for themselves. But what Otani already did in 2023, both for the Los Angeles Angels and for Japan's team in the World Baseball Classic is the reason he was selected as the Associated Press's Male Athlete of the Year for the second time in three years. Shohai is arguably the most talented player who's ever played this game, said Andrew Friedman, the Dodgers president of baseball operations, after signing Otani to a 10-year contract last week. Otani edged inter-Miami superstar Lionel Messi and tennis great Novak Dvorak Kovic for the AP honor in voting by a panel of sports media professionals. Otani received 20 of 87 votes while Messi and Djokovic got 16 apiece. Nikola Jovic, the Denver Nuggets NBA Finals MVP, got 12 votes. After winning his first AP Male Athlete of the Year award in 2021, Otani has joined an impressive list of two-time winners of the honor, which was first handled out in, handed out in 1931. Multiple-time winners include Don Budgie, Byron Nelson, Carl Lewis, Joe Montana, Michael Jordan, Michael Phelps, and four-time honorees Tiger Woods and Lance Armstrong. Four-time winner LeBron James is another generational superstar who chose Los Angeles as a free agent, while two-time honoree Sandy Koufax remains one of the greatest players to wear Dodger blue. Otani has upended decades of conventional wisdom during his six years in the majors, even surpassing most achievements of Babe Ruth while playing in an infinitely more difficult era. 
Most new frontiers in sports are crossed incrementally and gradually, but Otani has toppled barriers that stood for a century with peerless skills, confidence, and hard work. Otani unanimously won the All-MVP Award in 2021, and he repeated the feat in 2023 after finishing second in 2022 to Yankees slugger Aaron Judge, last year's AP Male Athlete of the Year. This year began with Otani's dazzling MVP performance for Japan's championship team in the World Baseball Classic, complete with a clinching strikeout of Angels teammate Mike Trout. He then turned in his third consecutive spectacular season, both on the mound and at the plate in Anaheim despite an early end after he injured his pitching elbow in August. Otani led the AL with 44 homers, 78 extra base hits, 325 total bases, and a 1.066 OPS as the Halos designated hitter. He also held hitters to an AL best .184 batting average while ranking second in the league with 11.39 strikeouts per nine innings and third with a 3.14 ERA at the time of his injury. There is nobody like him, and there's nothing that you would say he can't do, former Angels manager Phil Nevin said late in the season. Anything is possible with show. I don't know who else you would, could say that about in baseball history. Here's a couple headlines, other stories. Not going to be able to read them today, but uh, USF routes Syracuse and Boca Raton Bowl. That's a, that's a headline. Here's a headline that Reeves scores 30 as number nine Kentucky blows out Louisville. And uh, Rams start strong, hold off Saints to boost playoff hopes. So although this loss hurts its chances, New Orleans is still in serious contention for a playoff spot in the NFC South title because it finishes the season with two games against division opponents starting with Tampa Bay on New Year's Eve. Here's a couple short... Uh, here's a couple short... Um, Articles on this date. In 1941, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill arrived in Washington for a wartime conference with President Franklin D. Roosevelt. In 1944, on this date, during the World War II Battle of the Bulge, U.S. Brigadier General Anthony McAuliffe rejected a German demand for surrender, writing nuts in his official reply. In 1992, a Libyan Boeing 727 jetliner crashed after a mid-air collision with a MiG fighter, killing all 157 aboard the jetliner and both crew members of the fighter jet. And in 2001, Richard C. Reed, a passenger on an American Airlines flight traveling from Paris to Miami, tried to ignite explosives in his shoes but was subdued by flight attendants and fellow passengers. Reed is serving a life sentence in a federal prison. In 2010, President Barack Obama signed a law on this date, allowing gays for the first time in history to serve openly in America's military, repeating, repealing the don't ask, don't tell policy. And in 2017, the wildfire that had burned its way through communities in wild wilderness northwest of Los Angeles became the largest blaze ever locally recorded in California. It had scorched 273,400 acres and destroyed more than 700 homes. That's from the Associated Press. Folks, you are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger 
on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we're going to turn to the Fort Dodge Messenger for today. This is Friday, December 22nd. The Messenger has uh, on the top of the page headline, it's called Transformative. $7.5 million in federal funding coming to renovation project at West Ridge Townhomes, written by Kelby Wingert. The West Ridge Townhomes on the west side of the Fort Dodge will be undergoing a major lake facelift in the next few years, thanks in part to $7.5 million in federal funding. On Thursday, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development announced that the property is receiving the Leading Edge Award from HUD's Green and Resident Retrofit Program, GRRP. The GRRP was created by the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 and is aimed at improving quality of life for residents of HUD-assisted multifamily properties. The whole purpose of this is to improve them to make them more climate resilient, more energy efficient, said HUD Region uh, 7 Regional Administrator Ulysses Claiborne. Claiborne, as well as several other HUD officials, visited the West Ridge townhomes on Thursday morning to officially announce the Leading Edge Award. Those goals include reducing energy and water use at HUD-assisted multifamily properties to make them more resilient to extreme weather events and to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, said Claiborne, who oversees HUD operations in Iowa, Missouri, Nebraska, and Kansas. The funding will come through a $7.5 million surplus cash loan meaning that the loan will be paid back with surplus cash flow from the properties only after other debt obligations are handled. Claiborne said, This allows the property developer to not have to increase rent to cover the debt, keeping rent affordable for residents. The Leading Edge Award is likely the largest award of federal funds for any housing development project in Fort Dodge, according to Vicki Reek. Community and Economic Development Director for the City of Fort Dodge. The Westridge Townhomes awarded, rather award, was one of only 16 projects awarded, funded at this time, and the only one in HUD Region uh, 7. This makes a huge difference between a rehab hope happening at this property and not happening, said Matthew Segerdahl, principal and co-founder of Huntley Whitmer Development, LLC, of Torrance, California. Huntley Whitmer Development is in the process of acquiring the Westridge property. The property is currently owned by Westridge Holdings 125 LLC of Los Angeles, according to information from the Webster County Assessor's website. The acquisition is expected to be complete late fall or early winter of 2024, Segerdahl said. We're just so grateful that the HUD funding was made available and that we were able to be competitive and to get this award because it really will be transformative to this property, Segerdahl said. The renovation project plans include 
renovating units in all 20 buildings on the property to be more energy efficient with new windows and doors and entirely new ultra-efficient heating and HVAC system, low-flow toilets, new roofing, and solar panels. A new community room, new playgrounds, and new basketball courts will be added as well. The community room will also offer space for a small library, computer rooms, and play areas for kids. There will be some after-school programming, and there will be other programming for adults here, and that will help create a community for decades, Sedgardal said. The solar panels will also help the property become more sustainable by providing electricity, lowering the property's energy bills because utilities are included in the rent, he added. It's about making this property sustainable for not the next couple of years, but the next 5, 10, or 20 years, bringing up the standard, the condition of this to what it needs to be, to what the community wants it to be, and what it should be, Sagerdahl said. It'll transform the look and the feel of this property. In total, the project is expected to cost $25 million, Sagerdahl said. The remaining funding will come from low-income housing tax credits, corporate tax credit bonds, tax credit investors, and Federal Housing Administration financing. Work is estimated to begin next fall and take 15 to 18 months. During that time, Segerdahl said most of the tenants will be able to be relocated within the property while their units are undergoing uh, renovations, though a few may need to be housed in hotels for a short period. We're just excited that the property is going to be rehabbed, said David Ferk, Fort Dodge City Manager. Thanks for your investment in the community. Thanks for the money from HUD. It's appreciated. Something that our community needs is quality, affordable homes. So we appreciate you all doing what you can to help that happen in our town. The townhomes were built in 1970 and are leased as a mix of market value units and HUD HUD subsidized units. And right below that article on uh, the head... uh, headline page is this article written by Kelby Wingert. Local businesses make donations to Operation Warm at Forward Coat Rack. And it reads, just a few days ago, Operation Warm It Forward's Coat Rack downtown at 521 Central Avenue was nearly empty. It was kind of bare. I was a little surprised when I saw it, said Katie Fromm, communications coordinator at Decker Truck Line Incorporated. On Wednesday, Fram and Decker, Truckline Vice President of Administration, Tamil Tool, were able to completely fill the coat rack with warm winter wear for those in need. And right next to this uh, is a picture of the two of them smiling with coats in the background. Operation Warm at Forward was started in 2017 by Lynette Nelson and Troy Schroeder, both of Fort Dodge. Nelson learned of another city that was doing a community coat drive and leaving coats on street poles around town for those in need to pick up at their convenience. Since then, every winter, the duo set up a coat rack outside of Schroeder's Memories in Focus Studio at 521 Central Avenue. The coat rack stays outside 24-7, and anyone is invited to come up to take what they need. Around 150 uh, to 250 coats pass through Operation Warm it forward 
each year, Nelson said. Having the coat rack outside and in downtown makes the coats accessible, and the act of taking one, uh, one anonymous, Nelson said. Some may feel they have barriers to other coats, uh, programs from other agencies and organizations in the community, like having to meet specific income requirements or just feeling embarrassed to ask for a coat. Having this anonymous coat rack takes away those barriers. The donations received this week were a welcome surprise, Nelson said. We definitely haven't had the coat rack as full as we have the, uh, the past, as we have in the past, she said. But with what Katie and her team just did to get all those coats gathered definitely helped us restock it. Shimcat Motor Company and Nestle Purina Pet Care also brought by donations collected by their employees, she added. While the typical frigidly cold temperatures haven't hit Iowa yet this winter, they will sooner or later. And when they do, those coats will provide some relief from the chill for many in the community. Winter coats can be a huge expense expense that many uh, aren't able to afford. Even discounted coats from thrift stores can be out of reach for some. Fram said at the Decker, uh, said at Decker Truck Line around the holidays, the communications committee works together to figure out ways to give back to their communities. We have a bunch of different terminals across the country, so we pick something for each of our communities, she said. We adopt a family every year for Christmas, which we did again this year, but we also thought a lot of people have items kind of sitting around their homes, and we were talking about that, and we figured that if we were to organize a coat drive, it would make it a little bit easier for everyone at the office to just bring everything in, and then we can deliver it ourselves. So a few weeks ago, Fram set up uh, an area in the Decker employee cafeteria for staff to leave donations, and she sent out an all-staff email to them to know about the project. The, the donation table overflowed with coats, Fram said. Many of the coats donated were also brand new with tags still on them. We were really surprised about how many items we got, and there was a good mix of women, men, children, all different sizes, she added. On Wednesday, Fram said O'Toole Fram and O'Toole were able to deliver the collected donations and fill the entire coat rack. In fact, all of their donations wouldn't fit, so the extras are being stored in Schroeder's studio and will be added to the coat rack as space opens up. I just thank the community for their support, Nelson said. We very much appreciate the donations and even them just sharing Facebook posts or getting the word out. That has helped us maintain this all these years, and we keep it growing. Those interested in donating a coat can just walk up to the coat rack and hang the donations up. An article on page 5, Multiple Pets Were Rescued from Webster City House Fires, written by Jane Curtis. Fire forced the occupants of a home on Webster City's south side to flee shortly before 5 p.m. Thursday. Webster City firefighters arrived at the house at 701 Laura Lane, to see smoke coming from it, uh, coming from its second story, the multiple pets were immediately rescued. An unidentified firefighter is pictured above here, carrying one of the rescued dogs above, and the home is owned by Catherine Tewald. According to Hamilton County property records, it was built in 1966, 
just before 10 minutes after 5 p.m., Webster City Fire said the fire was under control. We have a few obituaries today. Marvin L. Ferguson, Lorenz, uh, age 96, passed away Tuesday, December 19, at the Spencer Hospital in Spencer, Iowa. Funeral services and uh, Masonic rites are at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, December 26, at Powers Funeral Home, Sacred Heart Chapel in Lawrence, with Reverend Rita Cordell officiating. Burial will take place in the Lawrence Cemetery near Lawrence. Visitation is from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, December the 26th, at the funeral home. And uh, for online condolences and obituaries, you can visit powerfh.net. Sharon Vought, V-O-U-G-H-T, uh, Rockwell City Memorial Services, 10.30 on uh, Tuesday, December 26th at St. Paul's Lutheran and Presbyterian Church. Visitation, uh, 9.30 a.m. Tuesday at the church, Loffersweiler Funeral Home. Gerald Joe, J-O, Johansson, Eagle Grove. Services will be Saturday, December 23rd, 11 a.m. at Evangelical Lutheran Church in Eagle Grove with visitation from 10 a.m. until the service. More information, F-O-U-S-T-H-T-F-H.com. Darvin Houseworth, H-A-U-S-W-I-R-T-H, Havlock. Funeral service, 10.30 a.m. Friday at the Hope Church in Havelock, Iowa. Burial in the Washington Cemetery near Havelock. Visitation, 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Friday at the Hope Church, powersfuneralhome.net, powersfh.net. And here is uh, one for Georgia Freed, 95, formerly of rural Lehigh, died Tuesday, December the 19th, at the Simpson Funeral Health Center in Fort Dodge. A service honoring Georgia's life will be held at a later date. Interment services will take place in the Dayton Cemetery. Arrangements have been entrusted to Gunderson Funeral and Cremation Services. Georgia is survived by her son Thomas, spouse Ellen Freed, Hoboken, New Jersey. Grandson, grandson Alex, spouse Liz, and their two children, Gabriel and Anna. She was preceded by her mother, Vera, her aunt Marjorie, and her husband Charles. Ron Hersom, H-E-R-S-O-M of Lawrence, age 83, passed away on Tuesday, December 19. It was his home in Lawrence. Um, funeral service is 2 p.m. today. No, I'm sorry, 2 p.m. Tuesday, the 26th, at Bethany Lutheran Church in Lorenz, with Reverend Dave Klappenbach officiating. Burial will take place in the Lorenz Cemetery near Lorenz. Visitation from 12 to 2 p.m. Tuesday, December 26th at the church. Powers Funeral Home of Lorenz is handling the arrangements. And online condolences can be sent to uh, powersfh.net. And finally, Robert Bailey. Uh, funeral service is at 1.30 p.m. Friday at the United Methodist Church in Lorenz. Burial in the cemetery. Visitation 12.30 to 1.30 p.m. Friday at, will be at the church. Turning to the sports section. Clark records triple-double as number four Iowa Rolls, written by John Bowenkamp. Associated Press, Dateline is Iowa City. 
Caitlin Clark scored 35 points on the way to the 13th triple-double of her career as the number 4 Iowa recovered from a slow start to defeat Loyola Chicago 98-69 Thursday night. Clark, the nation's leader in scoring and assists, had a career-high 17 rebounds to go with 10 assists. Clark, who has had 30 or more points in six games this season, was 12 of 21 from the field, making just four of 12 three-pointers. The last assist came on Jada Jomfi's layup with 2.251 left that gave Iowa a 94-69 lead. Iowa coach Lisa Bluter immediately called a timeout to get Clark out of the game. I knew we were going to make some bunnies, Clark said when asked if she was concerned she wouldn't get that last assist before, assist before coming out. Ten assists is all because of my teammates. I'm thankful for them and for Coach Bluter for allowing me to get the triple-double. It's always cool when you get one of those. Loyola coach Allison Gruth said there was no elaborate defense the Ramblers were going to come up with to try to slow Clark. She's really hard to play against, Gruth said. Her range is insane. I've seen teams try to box and won her. Send two players at her, and she can do it all. We were going to stay pretty pragmatic to what we did and try to slow them down with our pressure. Once they lit that up, it hurt us defensively. Hannah Stuckey had 20 points for Iowa, 12-1. Kate Martin had one had 19, and Sydney Affolter uh, had 10. Iowa trailed by as much as seven points in the first half before closing with an 8-2 run to lead 51-46 at halftime. Hawkeyes, who won their ninth consecutive game, took control of this game with a 19-3 run in the third quarter. Iowa held Loyola 6-5 to just five field goals in the quarter. The second half, we were much more locked in on defense, Clark said. Iowa's zone defense controlled the Ramblers in the second half. We tried to make some adjustments in the second half, take advantage of some of the things we saw, Goose said. And we were just stagnant with the ball. There we are. We were just stagnant with the ball. We liked the way we were making it hop in the first half. Emma Nolan led Loyola with 15 points. Sam Galanopoulos had 14. Our defense wasn't very good at the beginning of the game, but got a lot better in the second half, Bluter said. Loyola shot the ball extremely well in the first half, too well, and that's on us. Big picture, Loyola, the Ramblers came in with a four-game winning streak and controlled the game for most of the first half against the Hawkeyes. The shots they hit in the first half, though, didn't fall in the second half. Loyola shot just 26.7% in the half. Iowa, the Hawkeyes definitely missed Gabby Marshall, the team's best defender, who missed the game because of illness. It showed in the first half as the Ramblers hit four three-pointers and constantly beat the Hawkeyes down court. We're always a work in progress, Bluter said. I feel like we're good right now, but I think we can get a lot better. Up next, Iowa. The Hawkeyes get back into the Big Ten play with a home game against Minnesota on December 30th. Eight in a row at home for Cyclones is the headline on this story. Dateline is Ames. The Iowa State men's basketball team kept up with the Joneses Thursday night in Hilton Coliseum. 
Robert Jones and Curtis Jones combined for 33 points and 13 of 20 shooting from the field to aid the Cyclones 10-2, Big 12, in an 80-48 victory over Eastern Illinois, 6-7 and 0-0 and in the Ohio Valley. The victory kept Iowa State unbeaten at home, 8-0, and and gave head, head coach T.J. Osselberger win number 150 in his career. Curtis Jones drilled five three-pointers and tallied 15 of his game-high 18 points in the first half. And Robert Jones added 16 points on a 7-of-9 effort from the field. He also had a team-high six boards. Tamman Lipsky posted 11 of his 16 points after intermission, and Milan Momnoslovic netted 16 points after being scoreless in the break. Iowa State, which led by as many as 37 points late in the game, was 10 of 23 from three-point range, 43.5%, and, con- and connected on 16 of 18 at the charity stripe, 88.9%. Curtis Jones gave the Cyclones a spark from the bench in the early moments. He scored some quick or nine quick points behind a pair of three-pointers to give the Cyclones an 18-9 lead. After un increasing their lead to 26-12, Cyclones went on to a uh, four-minute scoring drought to allow the Panthers Panthers, to trim the deficit to under double digits at 26-18 with under eight minutes remaining. Curtis Jones made two more trays down the stretch to give the Cyclones a 39-26 advantage at the break. The Cyclones were 6-13 of 13 from beyond the arc in the first 20 minutes. A lipsy steal and nifty pass to Robert Jones for a for a bucket began second half scoring for the Cyclones. Robert Jones scored another basket on ISU's next possession as ISU stood fo- soon forged ahead, 48 to 30. Lipsy and Momlaslovic each scored seven points in the first nine minutes of the second period to increase the Cyclone lead to 48-34. Uh, the lead grew to 33 points, 76-43, after a Momsilovic tray with 13 or 3.15 remaining in the game. Tamman Lipsky scored 16 points, but he made his mark in multiple areas in the victory. Lipsy added seven assists, six rebounds, and noticed four steals. Rather, he notched four steals. His tenth straight game with three or more left thefts. Lipsy now has 116 steals. In his young 4-45 game career, already ranking number 18 in school history, Iowa State's next game is a New Year's Eve December 31 matchup versus New Hampshire at noon. The game is on Big 12 Network ESPN+. That takes me to a kind of like sports on TV if you want to know what's going on. Uh, Men's college basketball. You like Diamond Head Classics, that's at 4 p.m., and that's on ESPN2. SMU is at Murray State, 5 p.m. on CBS SN. Georgetown is at Marquette, uh, 6 p.m., that's FS1. Mar- Marist at Notre Dame, 7 p.m., ACCN. Chicago State's at Wisconsin at 7 p.m., BTN. Houston Christian at Texas A&M, 7 p.m., SECN. And Maryland at UCLA at 8 p.m. ESPN2. 
Uh, Illinois versus Missouri, 8 p.m., FS1. Women's College Basketball, Bowling Greens at Indiana, 5 p.m., BTN. And College Football, Georgia Tech versus UCF, 5.30 p.m., ESPN, ESPNN. And Men's Soccer, Sheffield United at Astor Villa, 2 p.m. on USA. Here's some information from the Area Sports Roundup. Cougars compete in quad. The Manson Northwest Webster wrestling team picked up a 42-33 win over South Hamilton Thursday night. Earning victories in the duel for the Cougars were Keaton Whitrock, Kale Craft, L. Shun, Ryland Course, Blake Jones, Carter Hoover, Tristan Thompson, and Mason Anderson. The Cougars fell to Clarion Goldfield Dows 56-22 as Whitrock, Hoover, Carter, Van Ways, and Anderson recorded wins. In a 60-23 defeat to West uh, Hancock, Whitrock, Shoon, Jones, and Hunter Newman had victories. Gale JV in action. Algona, the St. Edmund JV boys fell to Bishop Garrigan here Thursday night, 52-37. Jacob Nyland had 10 points, and Elias Colasia, 9 for the Gales. Southeast 7th graders finished year with win. The St. Edmunds 7th grade girls capped the season off with a 20-13 win in the A game over Webster City Thursday night. Elason Whitmore had 10 points with Ella Vandy adding 4. The B team fell 16-11 as Abby Webster scored 5. The A team finished the 6th Rather, the A team finished the year six and four overall, and the B team went four to five. And kind of wrapping up the sports section here, there's a lot of bowl games in the world, and uh, if I can find the right date here, all right, that's tonight, isn't it? This is the 22nd. There's a Gasparilla Bowl in Tampa, Florida. Georgia Tech versus UCF. That's at 5:30. There's a Saturday, December 23. That is tomorrow. It's called Camellia Bowl, Montgomery, Alabama, Arkansas State versus Northern Illinois. That's at 11 a.m. Uh, Birmingham Bowl, uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Um, Troy versus Duke at 11 a.m. Armed Forces Bowl, Fort Worth, Texas is number 24, James Madison versus Air Force, 2.30 p.m. I don't know if these are uh, on the radio. I'm sure they are somewhere or on the on the tube somewhere, but this is what's going on. Boise, Idaho, famous Idaho Potato Bowl. Georgia State versus Utah State, 2.30 p.m. And uh, the 68th Ventura Bowl, Mobile, Alabama, South Alabama, South Alabama versus Eastern Michigan at 6 p.m. And let's see what else we got here. We've got uh, Tuesday, December 26th, the Bowling Green versus Minnesota uh, Bowl, 1 p.m. And there is a first responder bowl in Dallas, Texas State versus Rice at 4.30. And let's see what else we got here. Military bowl, uh, Wednesday, December 27th, Tulane versus uh, Virginia Tech. And we have a holiday bowl, San Diego, California, Louisiana versus Southern Cal, 7 p.m. And uh, Thursday... That looks about it. There's obviously other bowls in there, but I thought I'd try to give you a little readout of some of those. Well, Pasadena, the Rose Bowl is uh, 
is number one Michigan versus number five Alabama. And then uh, uh, the college football playoff semifinal in New Orleans is um, number two Washington versus number three Texas, 7.45 p.m. What day is that? I should see that, but I don't. Must be, I think it's Monday, January 1. Okay. And then Monday, January 8th is the CFP National Championship at Houston. And that will be at 6.30 p.m. Folks, uh, that uh, brings us to the uh, end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I've been your reader, Doug Kretzinger. I want to thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And I hope you have a great day.